as uh, I think about two weeks left of the retreat. Some beans have fallen by the wayside. <laughs> and, uh, but most of you seem to be uh, getting on well with it. Because uh, it is a rare opportunity to have such uh, conditions uh, as this, uh, this past for uh, this January February retreat. Even the weather has been so pleasant this year. Uh, Bikuchandapalo hasn't had to crawl into the building once. I don't think. Ever since we came to Amaravati four years ago, he's. He and Venerable Subhadra used to always be spending winter retreats underneath, lying under the building. You see their legs sticking out in, in the snow, trying to fix the, all the plumbing. Had, in this building, I think, one first winter, all the plumbing exploded, didn't it? <laughs> the toilets in that room and blasted forth. And Broke the shattered the, the the shatterless glass on the door. So this year, relatively mild, uh, pleasant winter time. I've tried to structure the retreat in a way that gives you a lot of time to yourself, practice on your own, and kind of uh, to uh, just see how you do, how you can motivate yourself. Today is a Valentine's Day, and so that's significant. And, and what is the what is the significance of Valentine's Day? But Saint Valentine was what? Was who? What did he do? Oh. And why? Why did they send these valentines on his? Nobody knows. <laughs> what? Ah. <laughs> we got some or something now.
How was he martyred? When was how long ago was that? You don't. Because we in the in <laughs> in America, we used to in the class when we were little children, we used to make these valentines, send them to the little girls. <laughs> in the meditation you can you can see how things do come up into consciousness <clears throat> what we have done in the past how we've lived and and all of that will and all that we've suppressed uh, or rejected through the conditioning process will will come into consciousness, and this is where we really need to establish our <coughs> strength in refuge in in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Because without that, then of course you feel like you can feel very frightened or threatened by the uh, results of what is really good meditation where you're releasing a lot of these things and they are and you're letting them into into a conscious into consciousness in order to let them go so then it's a it's a good time now to to uh, reflect and and reaffirm your sense of refuge in the triple gem the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Psychologically, this is very important to have that that refuge. Because if you if you don't really develop a sense of refuge, then uh, you can just feel very threatened or very uh, upset or anxious or by the things that can come come up into your mind. Also, the sense of the loss of, of, 
uh, when when the anatta becomes stronger, with the sense, the strong sense of personality and self is being threatened, that can be rather frightening because there's, uh, there's a lot of defense, isn't there, in protecting the sense of, a, of me as a person. The self is oftentimes is surrounded with all kinds of defense mechanisms. And when they start falling away or not operating very well anymore, then one can feel very like you're you're just disappearing or you're dying or it's the you're you're going crazy or you're losing yourself because the 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 sense of self is if one is really attached and obsessed with that then uh, that holds that gives you the sense of of being a, some meaning and purpose and and uh, focus in your life. But as you begin to see that the, the view of a self, the belief in a self, is always going to, is, is always putting you in some dangerous position. Because it depends very much on the defenses and supports and the illusions to, to hold that together. When those things are no longer together, then whether you're in meditation or, uh, or wherever you happen to be, you'll feel a sense of anxiety and fear. The refuge in Buddha is, uh, I think, you know, what say as you as you understand what the, the the true meaning of that. It's not just a not just a, a nice kind of ceremony or an empty just empty word, but it's pointing to something immediate and to the real strength that there is in mindfulness and knowing, awakenness. I mean, when you're caught in a fantasy world, an illusory world that you create, there's no stability in that. It can, it changes and it, and it, uh, you can make it go up and go down and it, but it, the illusions of a self and fantasy life are all uh, very unstable, uncertain, People that are caught in the in those conditions are are crazy. They're just being whirled around by illusion, illusory conditions. They have no refuge. They have no center, no still point, no no real sense of awakened mindfulness, balance that Bhutang Sarnangachami really implies. Now, in just the Buddha Rupa itself, this one here, for example, very nice one. The meditation posture, the uh, hands in that mudra um, imply uh, the Buddha in meditation. And the the form, like when we sit here, isn't it? It's, it? In some way, we're actually adopting or putting ourselves within that Buddha form. I mean, it's uh, the, the sitting, the 
the, the, the Han Mudra itself. Notice the eyes are open, not closed, as I've been suggesting to you. <laughs> a sense of awaken. When we fall asleep, we close our eyes, don't we? But to be awake implies the opening of the eyes. Physical, physical awakeness. The body held straight, neither in, in a rigid way nor in, in, a, in a lax way. There's this perfect balance of the human form in the, in the samadhi or the, the state of, of balance and serenity where there's a sense of, of, of away, alertness, attentiveness, knowing, but not a self. Now the famous uh, sculptor Rodin pro- provided a perfect example of Western uh, mentality in mean, the thinker, isn't it? The man, naked man sitting there looking with his head on his fist, looking uh, in, in, in terrible anguish and despair, thinking too much. Isn't it? The thinker, what happens when you think too much is you end up in despair, anguish, depression. Where with the Buddha Rupa, you don't, you don't think, it, it doesn't seem that the Buddha is thinking about anything. He's not in anguish or despair. It's awakeness, alertness, knowing. So it's a, it's a, just to contemplate the, this particular image itself. It helps us to, to say, bring into our mind what the form, the external form of Bhutang Sernangachami is. Like we're all of us are now in the monastic form. Isn't it? We're actually uh, wearing robes and, and uh, the, the, the actual presence is within that spirit, within that style of the Buddha. Uh, contemplating just what fashion does to, to us. Thinking about, uh, say, like, like uh, skinheads and punks. Now, the, the particular uh, maybe adolescent or juvenile fashions that oftentimes imply a kind of demonic uh, quality, don't they? Of, of viciousness, like skinhead tends, probably tends towards a kind of reptilian, cold-blooded appearance. And punk, as I see it, tends to present a kind of uh, crazy, demonic uh, madness you know, where, where you, you make yourself look like like the mad woman or the mad man or something to make yourself look frightening to others. To startle your parents, make your mother scream, I think is the... Your father get indignant and be ashamed to be seen with you on the street with your pink and green hair and all the different... Ways that we do things to to shock and upset people with just our appearance. 
even though some of us as monks and nuns have shocked our parents. <laughs> but our intention is not to do so, is it? We're not, we're not becoming, we're not putting on the robe, shaving the head in order to upset people. But what we do, just simple things like that, if we, the emphasis on trying to make ourselves very, very attractive, sexually attractive, spending our life trying to attract someone else, arouse sexual desire in them. Uh, all this is, is karma. It makes us, it, uh, we, we, as you can see in your, in your mind, as your things come up, these, this, a lot of these things are, will come up into consciousness. The fears, the, the greed, the, the uh, shame, guilt, and all that will, uh, these conditions will arise because of things that we've done. Even though it, we've been very much maybe part of, a, of just fashion and trend, is, is, uh, we're, we're not kind of born wise and enlightened, are we? We're conditioned by the society we live in and the fashions of the age fashions of the time. But they do leave their mark on our, our, on our minds. Then in the Bhutang Sarnangachami, this, this refuge is, you're, you're, you're aligning yourself in, a, in, a, in an ancestral lineage, actually, with the Buddha. We chant that even the 28 Buddhas, the whole lineage of Buddhas from uh, from the very from the first one to the Shakyamuni Buddha to uh, Gotama the Buddha, so that this is this is a, a lineage of the human human potential uh, for seeing things clearly. Mindfulness, wisdom. This, to me, is the most significant and whole purpose of, uh, or whole the wonder of our of our being human, of being born in, as a human being. Is do it seems that this is the really truly wonderful thing about uh, being human is this opportunity, this chance we all have of the. Bhutang Sarnangachami. Even though there are many other kind of noble opportunities to become uh, universal monarchs or mothers and fathers or, or uh, teachers and, and uh, politicians and scientists and uh, you name it, there's so many possibilities that none of them seem seem in particularly uh, enticing or noble in comparison with the say the the whole meaning significance of the refuge in the Buddha putting oneself in that in that form within that shape within that lineage so like the 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 actual form of the, the monk, uh, the bhikkhu, the, all the, uh, the, the dasa the, the idea of the, 
the eight precept, the anagarika. All of this is is an outward sign, a form, which is reducing the tendency to align oneself you know, or make uh, or emphasize one's unique personality or or class or culture or whatever, race or gender, but to put, to, to diminish that, not to emphasize any of that toward the common refuge we have in Bhutang Sarnangachami. That's, that's how we relate, isn't it? Our relationship is in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha now, not, not through class relationships or caste, or family, national, ethnic, any of these things are, are, are relinquished for this, this way of being, say, brothers, sisters, or relatives, or in the ancestral line of the Buddha. The lineage of that. I mean, in, in Theravada especially, the lineage is, is, you don't have lineages to teachers, really. You have lineage to, to the Gautama, the Buddha. The very fact that the emphasis is on the Vinaya discipline and on the practicing of the teaching of the Buddha, the, the Four Noble Truths. Uh, the lineage is, is direct to Gautama, the Buddha, rather than to uh, say various gurus or teachers that have uh, have arisen since, even though we respect our teachers, yet all our teachers definitely are in the lineage of uh, their their lineages to the Buddha rather than to a, a person. I notice in in like in so many forms of Mahayana the the emphasis is uh, oftentimes on the on gurus, and uh, this used to baffle me. Like Milarepa and and uh, Dogen and all these different uh, <coughs> different uh, Zen masters. Uh, you talk to people practicing Zen sometimes, and they uh, and they. Uh, seem to have absolutely no knowledge of the Buddha's teachings. More or less, they know all about Dogen and what various roshis have said. Where the actual, uh, uh, if you ask them about the Four Noble Truths of the Padija Samuppada, they're totally blank, bewildered. Because <coughs> of Mahayana, not all of the time, but much of it aims at a lineage to particular masters, certain masters, certain ages. Which is all fine, I have no objection to it, but pointing to that, that, that in, the, in the particular Theravada approach, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't really seem to occur. Because the the importance is is always placed on the actual um, four noble truths and the vinaya. 
the following in keeping within the the restraint of the Vinaya discipline. So that means, to me anyway, that that, that is my lineage. It's direct to the Buddha rather than to to a particular school. Our teacher in Thailand, Ajahn Chah, used to always emphasize that he, and they'd ask, ask him what sect he belonged to. There are two sects in Thailand of Theravada. He'd always say, I'm a disciple of the Buddha, rather than claim even a, a sectarian lineage. As these things can be very important to people, what, what particular sect you happen to be a member of. But his, his, his view was always, I'm a disciple of the Buddha. I remember one time when we first came to England in 77, a woman came to Ajahn Chah and said, um, I'm, uh, I'm a disciple of Ajahn Mahabua. And so I can't, be, I can't be your disciple because I'm a disciple of Ajahn Mahabua. And Ajahn Chah said, Ajahn Mahabua and I are disciples of the Buddha. <laughs> Very good answer, wasn't it? Without the fuss about about these things, the kind of the sense of loyalties and and uh, and preferences is, is oftentimes very an emphasis in creation of personality, rather than on the the pointing to the Bhutang Sernangachami. Because our refuge is not in Ajahn Mahabhu or Ajahn Chah, but in in the Buddha. A tamang sernangachami, refuge in Dhamma. Truth of the way it is. A refuge in Dhamma is santiti ko akali ko It's always be here and now. The the refuge is immediate. It's it's not it's not an abstraction. It's not uh, an, an ideal of the mind. Is it? The, Santitiko Akaliko Dhamma is always now. When we're open, when you're really open, mindful, then that's the refuge in Dhamma. In the way things are, all that arises ceases. All Dhamma is anatta. So the refuge, Tamang Tenangachami, is not just an empty kind of phrase uh, or Theravadan custom. But it is pointing directly to the here and now, to the way things are. The teachings of the Buddha are the, the whole purpose of those teachings, like uh, what we've been investigating uh, in the Paticca Samuppada, is just pointing to the here and now, isn't it? You're not thinking about Paticca Samuppada as some kind of intellectual abstraction or interesting philosophical angle. I hope not anyway. At least your reflections are they oftentimes bringing up just the most kind of ordinary things that you feel, fear or anxiety about speaking out or having to talk in front of a group or whatever and, or just the, the anticipation. You're talking about the here and now dhammas of just 
the, the, the fears, anxieties, uh, greed, hatred, and delusion as arising and ceasing here and now, and, the, and the beginning to understand all the, what self-view is. Now, when we create a self as, as somebody uh, who has to say something, then we're going to feel anxious. Going, because the self is, 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 is always a, something extra and is something that can be um, hurt or harmed, criticized, laughed at, whatever. But the Tamang Sernangachami is transcending all of that. Conditions arising. Uh, Foolish conditions, intelligent conditions. You say something incredibly bright and intelligent and scintillating and fascinating, or you say something foolish and stupid. Whatever it is, it's Dhamma, isn't it? It rises and ceases. But when you're thinking about it from a personality view, then you think, well, oh, I made a fool of myself, or didn't I, wasn't I brilliant today? If you said something really fantastically wonderful and profound, you, you think about yourself as being maybe a, 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 the bright light of the Sangha. Or you said something that you said it sounded, didn't sound very good, and then you think you're, you're the dummy. And so you're, you're the, the bright light or the dummy is a self-view which arises and ceases. And the Paticca Samupada is always this, this way of, of looking, investigating all of this. How, what suffering is, the arising and the cessation of suffering. Even to think of yourself in positive ways as being a, a, a wonderful speaker and a clever being and a great gift to the Sangha is suffering. In whatever way you think of yourself, you just think, even the idea of yourself as being just an ordinary, average, neither, not, not just an ordinary guy, neither the, the, the bright light of the sun nor the dummy. I'm just, you know, I'm not the greatest, but I'm not the worst either. I'm just average. That's also suffering. Just to be anything, to be uh, superior, inferior, or equal, is suffering. Uh, the Buddha made this very clear in his teachings. To think of yourself in any way, that we're all equal, or that, I, that you and I are equal, or that I'm superior or I'm inferior, whatever it is, 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 is not what one really is. Paticca Samuppada is, the more you investigate it, the more it kind of seems, you know, one really appreciates it. Like I, I can see when, uh, before we really, really looked at it very closely, I think we, we'd all learned to chant it way back in the Hampstead days. I remember Venerable Nandu and I sitting there chanting the Vichabhajaya Sankara and all that. And then, uh, 
done that for years. And I, I uh, studied it the first year that I was a, when I was a novice, a Samanera. I thought I understood it very well. Figured out um, letting go from that, from, from contemplating Paticca Samupada that first year. Got good insight into letting go from contemplating that. Then I more or less didn't look at it anymore for years. Then last year, last winter retreat, I suddenly had this bright the urge, insight that, that what what needed to really be investigated was Paticca Samupada. <clears throat> and I, now the second second winter retreat on Petita Samupada, even more, it's getting more clear, more meaningful. It, it's a very profound teaching, in fact. It's not just, it's not, it, there's nothing superficial about it, but as you investigate and look at it from different ways and, and uh, apply it to just anything that you're feeling or thinking in the moment, uh, good or bad, don't be, don't be f- frightened of, of, you know, even applying it to arrogant thoughts or <coughs> feelings of inferiority or feelings of equality or all, all the kind of <coughs> attitudes and uh, sane or insane or whatever might be coming, you might be experiencing. You're looking at it through this, through Paticca Samupada, studying the Dhamma in the Tammang Saranangachami. It's the Buddha that contemplates the Dhamma, isn't it? It's the ability to be awake and, uh, and wise that we, that we see and know the Dhamma. And the Dhamma, is, this, this is a brilliant word, Dhamma, because it, it uh, it, it's not to be defined. You, you have to, it's a word that, that uh, even though we say translated as truth, truth is the way it is, that still leaves it something to, to, be, to be seen and known through, through mindfulness rather than grasped as a definition. Because the truth is the way it is, what does that do to your mind as a definition? It, leaves your mind quite open, doesn't it? Well, how is it then? What is the truth of the way it is? Tell me. <laughs> in, in, our, in that way, desire to know the truth as if, as if it were, could be defined and given to us in words. But when we say truth of the way it is, or dhamma, it, we, it's not telling you anything really, but pointing. It's a pointer. Because you, you, you can't, what is the truth of the way it is? Tell me. And the mind goes blank, hasn't it? How can we say in words? Whatever we say is just maybe a little bit. Or the best you can say uh, in words really is all is anicca, sape sankaranicca, sape tamanata. So that this 
is to, is to be investigated. I'm very pleased with the fact that you're actually using your minds for investigation this, this uh, winter retreat. You're learning to, to look and reflect, contemplate things. Notice. And to learn from just the, the, little, the little things, rather than, than, than just trying to suppress your anxieties or fears or, or just trying to sit here and get, get into a nice, lovely, tranquil state where you don't feel, you feel peaceful, and then holding on to that. That's what many of you used to do, just try to use these, these opportunities to get tranquilized. <clears throat> but as you know, tranquility is not a refuge, is it? Tranquility is very fragile and can be easily disrupted. And uh, the more you're attached to tranquility, the more you can, the more uh, threatened you are by the fact that so much of, of life's experiences is not tranquilizing, is it? For example, this afternoon, I thought, well, wonderful opportunity. I have the whole afternoon. Came in here, it started one o'clock to two. Then I went into this, into the Dhamma Hall and walked. I was noticing this kind of, this thing going on outside. And I saw Venerable Ananda standing in the middle of the courtyard with Robert and Venerable Amaro kind of rushing about doing something. Something's happening. <coughs> And then uh, I went out uh, about three o'clock to go over and sit, and and Venerable Sir Jesus says, "Do you know what's happened with Robert?" And suddenly, <laughs> <coughs> all my plans for a tranquil afternoon. There's nothing tranquil about dealing with Robert. <laughs> So that, that this is, but it, one can still see the Dhamma of the situation. If tranquility were the refuge, then that refuge is not very stable, not very dependable, because anything can disrupt it. Any unpleasant or even pleasant condition. But among Sarnangachami, everything is included. The pleasant conditions are Dhamma, the unpleasant conditions are Dhamma, sitting in a meditation hall, or having to deal with a difficult situation, is Dhamma rather than anything else other than that. If one's refuge is, is in tranquility, then you have to keep running away from anything that isn't going to lead to that. Well, when your refuge is in Dhamma, then life is, whatever happens, is Dhamma for us. We learn from it. We're not, we're not uh, uh, making any deals anymore or trying to get any advantages. We can more or less take life as it comes. 
moves and changes and it's pleasurable, pleasing, tranquilizing, confusing, chaotic condition. The refuge in Dhamma is an unshakable refuge. Refuge in, is in tranquility is shakable, trembling. I used to take refuge in tranquility a lot, and I was always trembling. I used to get so so upset by any, um, things that really were not very much I could get very upset about, just because I didn't want to be bothered. I didn't want to have to listen. I didn't want to have to speak. I didn't want to have to be bothered with doing this or doing that or going here or going there. So what wasn't even very much could be, I could make a lot, I could make it into a lot, into a big, huge problem because of my refuge in tranquility, which was not, wasn't really a refuge. It was a very shaky attachment, very fragile. And we came and began to see that, that I was becoming more and more selfish irritable and unpleasant the more I tried to become tranquil. Sankang Sarnangachami Refuge in Sangha Sangha is community, isn't it? It's not personal. We're Sangha. We're not uh, Venerable Sumato is this, and Venerable Tiradama is that, and Sister Sundra, and this, this is, these are not the, there's not personality cults or emphasis on individuals. But Sangha is, are the, the, what those who practice the teachings of the Buddha, realizing the Dhamma, living uh, with moral restraint, living under the precepts. So Sangha is, uh, it always implies like more than one, or, or to have a, a full Sangha, a bhikkhu Sangha, you have to have four monks before you can call it a Sangha. It's just on the, on the level of, of bodies, you have to have four. Which you, which means that that, uh, that 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 is a community, a group, rather than the emphasis on individual, or guru, or teacher. And the Sangha is, is uh, those who, supatipano, ujupatipano, yaya patipano, samiji patipano, those who practice in the right way. The direct path, practice what is good, doing what is good, what is proper, true, in, in what is dhamma. This is the sangha then. So the sangha brings us to, to the to the sense of being, of, of individual beings working together, 
We're not, we're not competing or it's not a contest anymore. It's not anything other than, than a moral position that we all take and our sincerity, our sincere intentions to practice and realize the Dhamma. So that's another very stabilizing refuge, isn't it? It's a refuge, just to have, have people around like this here at Amravati who, who, who try to live within that restraint and try to and practice the teaching. The wonderful support for us. Much more difficult to go off and try to do it by yourself. And that I found uh, uh, they living in Thailand, just having a teacher like Ajahn Chah, the monastery, the Wat Bapong, is very supportive. And and the, one could really see, you know, living in the Sangha, what was the, the kind of defilements and selfish views and delusions became very apparent when you're living in Sangha. But when I lived by myself, I found it much more easy to delude myself. When I was practicing on my own, I found it much uh, a strong inclination to delude myself. Where I, I found that much less possible to do in, in a Sangha of monks. Because that, that self-delusion Seems to be very seems to be very strongly reflected in sangha, in living with sangha. When you're living on your own, in your own way, uh, the tendency is to justify your own views and to live according to do what you particularly want to do. Where in sangha, what you want to do isn't very important anymore, is it? It's to be seen as just a condition of the mind, because we do what the Sangha does. Like with the, they, the bhikkhus, we, we keep the, the Padimokha discipline. We do that, rather than just doing what each one of us feels like doing. We don't always feel like keeping it, admittedly, but we, we give up our own personal views and opinions and preferences and feelings for the Sangha. A sense of relinquishment. Because if we don't do that, then each one of us would, would have our own, would want to do everything our own way. And that would reinforce this sense of being a, a personality, an ego. Notice in, in I've noticed this with the lay Buddhist group, how just how much contention there is, like in the Buddhist society in London. <laughs> how much, how much uh, contention and wrangling, quarreling there is among lay people, because they don't they don't have uh, they don't have a, real, a sense for sangha. They have they have they have their own views and opinions. which they tend to be very attached to. And so it's very difficult to kind of coordinate them. They tend to suspect a lot of suspicion and envy, jealousy, 
competition and strong views. So sometimes you feel a bit hopeless. Sometimes you think that's absolutely hopeless because of there doesn't seem to be any way to, to solve the problem because each one has their, is so attached to their own particular viewpoint. But in Sangha, we, this, this doesn't arrive. We, if I'm really attached to a view that I want to impose on you, it's, very, it's seen very clearly as something that, that I'm attached to, Does it, rather, rather than uh, something I'm just you know, going to stubbornly hold on to and force, or just get up and leave if you don't do what I want. You're not putting your your views or your ways as being the important ones anymore. It's for the harmony, the, the, uh, the unity of Sangha that's important rather than my views. <coughs> and it's always good to be able to, to give yourself up, to let go, even if you feel very indignant and very sure that you're right, I really want, I don't trust that feeling. I don't trust that feeling in myself when I feel righteously indignant. I've made too many mistakes, <coughs> confused too many people by following. <laughs> and it's very much living and learning how to live within a community that that I've seen it, where when I was a layman, I didn't see it at all. I was very kind of stubborn and, uh, and get very hurt and very upset by my relationships with other beings because I didn't have any, any reflection for it. I just tended to, to have strong views and, and then feel very indignant if people didn't go along with them or didn't agree. Now this, the three refuges then, as you, I hope I've been able to kind of convey in the, tonight's talk is, is a very, is, this is what you really need to to uh, contemplate, uh, which gives you a, a very, if you, if you do it properly, you feel very, a sense of great strength and support, a real refuge, a, a real sense of refuge, not just a, a sentiment or a nice idea, but a real stabilizing sense of stability and confidence in, your, in, your, in what you're doing, the life you're living, uh, your practice, of the Buddha Dhamma. <clears throat> so you're not just left in kind of a psychological vacuum where suddenly there's anatta, no self, and you don't know wh where to go or what to do. And, and uh, you get caught up in, in fear and anxiety about um, what's happening to your mind. Because this, this sense of refuge is, is the very basis of, of being a Buddhist. You take the refuges before you take the precepts. 
don't you? They, you take Bhutang Sarangachami, Tambang Sarangachami, Sankang Sarangachami before you take the precepts. It's the very foundation and strength and stability of the Buddhist convention. And it's not to be seen as merely a, 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 an empty ritual, because it's then it is. It, 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 some people don't bother with the refuges anymore. They think it's not necessary. But I found that psychologically that these refuges are very uh, powerful. And they're not just kind of conditioning your mind to, to be attached to ideas, but they're, they're pointing always at, some, at that here and now and, and, the, and the, that awakenness, seeing, and proper responses to life as it's happening to you. So that the refuges are, are a very important, essential ingredient of our life. Now some people don't even like to call themselves Buddhists. Because they, they, the idea of, of, of aligning oneself with anything is oftentimes resisted. But don't, that's not a not not to be considered a Buddhist as, as something kind of, as a sect. But it's learning to use these conventions for, for reflection and wisdom. Not to just go around having a title for yourself, or saying I'm a Buddhist, just uh, uh, as another uh, ego, egotistical view about yourself, or to feel that you don't, you, you can't be bothered with that. But what what we're pointing to it this, during this retreat very much is how to use these conventions, what their true purpose is. Not they're not just empty traditions or meaningless formulas or or things that that uh, are just extra. They're actual every one of them, like what we've been talking about, the refuge precepts, Four Noble Truths, Paticca Samuppada, they're not just ancient uh, rituals or empty chants, are they? They're actually directing one's whole attention and being and awareness towards the way things are. So I offer this for your reflection. Is the Uposata observance day the uh, waning or waxing? What is it? Waxing moon. So it starts waxing and it's waned. This is the point where the the waning and the waxing meet reflection on the way of the Dhamma, the law of Dhamma. This waning and waxing is the rising and ceasing, beginning, ending, 
the, uh, this time, isn't it? It's, it's about time and the illusions that we create around uh, the conditioned realm. You can see here in, in a community such as this one, where there's a kind of attempt to at least continuously point to Dhamma, uh, how many people really miss out on it, even though they're sitting here and they, they, they hear the words, but they don't, that doesn't seem to reach, they still create. And talk about the end of the world and, the, and uh, how to let go, and then people still get upset, get angry, disillusioned, fed up, self, full of self-pity, full of despair, want to leave, run away, and on and on like that. <laughs> you can see why. The human predicament is quite a difficult one, isn't it? Because even in the uh, most, in the, in, in the situations most conducive, uh, the human mind can still believe it, the delusions it creates. Now, the, the way is really a way of trust and faith. This, uh, this, uh, when, when you practice Dhamma and you contemplate it, and you, you really understand, you, there's an understanding and a realization, a realizing of truth, not just an, a kind of conceptual understanding anymore, or appreciation of, from intellectual uh, understanding, but a realization of that truth, it's real. And then on this, this seemingly time-conditioned realm of the waxing and waning moon and the observance days and the precepts and the world of bhikkhus and dasasiladharas and anagarikas and anagarikas and upasikas and, and so forth, all the uh, Buddhists and Christians, all these are the these are no, no longer any problems, are they? They're just uh, conventions that can be used skillfully or unskillfully. That is uh, really up to you, isn't it? It's what you you can choose to, to uh, practice, or you can choose not to practice. Like Robert decided he didn't want to practice anymore. So he decided to practice in a way that he would would never we'd never allow him back. <laughs> Do everything to make everyone hate you and detest you and break all the precepts and whatnot. And that's the way of then deciding I'm not going to do this anymore. Because it does, suddenly you, you, you can see what, you, sometimes we get inklings of what it really implies, the realization of truth. And that can be rather frightening because in some ways we want the delusions of our mind. We, we, there's a, 
a, a real resistance in many people to let go of those delusions. You'd like to get rid of the unpleasant delusions, you know, the ones that are uncomfortable and miserable and whatnot, but there's a lot of delusions we, we might still want to play around with. Comfortable delusions or delusions that one really very fond of and, and uh, wants to remain deluded by them. <coughs> So oftentimes the terror that comes through meditation is, is like the, these precious delusions are under threat. You know, no longer are they, they, can, are they, can you fully be deluded by them anymore? They, they're now being questioned, they're a bit shaky. The substantial, uh, secure realm that, you've delu- that you have a delusion about is beginning to shake earthquake in Los Angeles type of thing. Or a hurricane in the north. And sometimes it's like a hurricane, isn't it? And violent wind blowing through your mind, threatening everything around, all the, all the important things that you're attached to. Not, not just blowing the, the kind of uh, bad air away, but it's blowing the trees over and the the, the lovely oaks and the ornamental shrubs along with it. <laughs> the sangsara, this image of sangsara is is a, is a realm, is an illusory realm where, where there's just this continuous uh, pain and anguish and suffering and death going on and people dying. When you contemplate it, you know, just on the, we can live in a world of, you know, our rose garden and cat and cups of tea and uh, try to hang on to a world of of seeming comfort and security and precious things, then the cat dies. I remember talking to a Sri Lankan psychiatrist one time and uh, asking him, what is it you find, you find like in difference between, say, treating mental illness in Britain and mental illness in Sri Lanka? And he said, well, he said, here in Britain people get very depressed for over, say, death of a cat. The cat dies and then they go into terrible depression for months or even years. He said, Sri Lankans don't do that. (laughs) 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 Because this is a, say, the cat represents um, an illusion, doesn't it? of comfort and security and affection, warmth. Uh, uh, I know a woman who, who loved cats more than she loved people. Yeah, the cats were much more controllable. I mean, you could, you could lock them up in your flat and uh, not let them out, and then you could 
feed them and they, they'd be affectionate to you and you'd give them little tidbits and lovely little bits of meat and, and they'd, they'd, they'd purr and they'd kiss you and things like this. Where human beings are a little more unmanageable, aren't they? And try to lock another human being up in your flat and just feed him and see how, <laughs> how grateful or affectionate we would be. <laughs> or have a nice canary in a cage or pets. So the, the illusory world, I mean, not to d- diminish the pleasure of having animals, I'm not making fun of saying we shouldn't, but to recognize that so much of worldly happiness depends on the illusion of love and security and the familiar, the safe. And yet the actual samsara is, is an ever-present is ever re- danger, isn't it? There's danger at any moment. There's everything can be upset and, and uh, the cat can die, the canary can, can drop dead, the house can fall down, hurricane, earthquake, fire. And uh, then, uh, then when Nanda was saying about the, the trine uh, that the astrologists are, and everybody's getting enthusiastic about this fantastic trine uh, it's a kind of, you can see the human mind thinking, oh, it's all going to get better. Maybe the samsara is going to not be so dangerous. You know, this gloom, doom, pollution, nuclear destruction, earthquake and terror and misery. But maybe this trine is going to bring a kind of harmony and peace and we're going to live happily and, and everybody is going to be development and, and everybody's going to be happy and safe, secure. And with this trine, you know, let's hope that everything gets better and better and better and better and better. That's what I want to hear. Just don't tell me about those, those other things. But the end of the world and the destruction of the world is pretty exciting too, isn't it? It's all about pollution, the hole in the ozone uh, veil or whatever it is, and the... the uh, <clears throat> problems of uh, uh, and the gloom doom it can be quite exciting too the Armageddon it can be really exciting when everything when the idea of everything kind of being destroyed or the other of just, of just everything getting better and better the golden age of Aquarius the lion and the lamb lie down together they're friendly and, and uh, Everybody gets on with each other very well. And there's just uh, uh, sharing and cooperation and love. But then how much of our life really is, is neither the, the uh, cat- catastrophic disaster or the golden age of Aquarius? And just say here at Amravati, how much of your life is waiting for the bell to ring. How much of your life is not just uh, uh, beautiful, uh, positive, 
insights and, and, and that, but just learning to bear with discomfort or unpleasant mental states or, or restriction, restraint. And it can get, I mean, a lot of the monastic form is, is a restraint, isn't it? It's not like you're doing anything ex- terribly exciting or, or you're, you're, even the practice. You're not, you're not trying to get high and go off into the Brahma realms or you're not, uh, and after a while the uh, kind of um, hellish realms drop away, the kind of extreme miserable things and you're just stuck in this plane of so what? La-di-da, another day, get up, wait for the bell, another chanting session, another waiting for the gruel, waiting for the meal, waiting for the, the anamotana, waiting for Tannam and his wife to finish their chanting. <laughs> Now we can, now we, at the end of a retreat, we can, it's the end of a retreat, two weeks left, and the mind can start thinking about what, you know, who's going to go where, what should we do, what projects do we have to accomplish in this next year, Uh, how do we organize it, Um, and should I go home and see my parents, should my parents come and see me, should I... Or shouldn't I? Or what? <laughs> so that that the end of something always gives rise to the possibility of something new, doesn't it? And the coming to an end uh, conveys in our mind this this uh, idea of that this we got to start some something else, some new development, or begin something. It's just a suggestion. The, the this is moving toward the end of the retreat. And then what happens after the end? And the mind will start creating projects, doesn't it? Is that true with some of you? All of you? (laughs) So whether the trine in the sky is going to bring a golden age of absolutely fantastic harmony and Super duper peace and the lions and the lambs uh, love each other forevermore, or it becomes maybe the, before there's any. Then there's this always this other kind of threatening thing. Before the real golden age begins, there's going to be a time of great destruction. Before you can ever really get the golden age of Aquarius going, and as far as you're going to have to really go through a tremendous kind of cleansing. Purgatory. That's exciting too, isn't it? And we'll be able to get through that. Then we can get the dessert at the end of the meal. <laughs> we managed to get through the nettle soup.
Then we get the chocolate sponge. But anyway, most of our, this human existence is just like this, isn't it? Sitting, standing, walking, lying down, breathing. It's neither, uh, neither golden age, Aquarius, nor, nor miserable destruction. It's like this. Most of our life so far is just this much, isn't it? To, it's, it's, ni- it's not wonderful and fantastic, nor is it horrible. And this is where the Buddha kept pointing, was at the, at the ordinary, the, the Dhamma, the way things are. Uh, not, the extremes were to be recognized, but not attached to. Like, the only way you can really reflect on the way things are is to note that the extremes are just moments of consciousness, and that's it. They can't make everything... You can't hold on to absolutely fantastic as permanent quality of any, any particular situation or moment, can you? You can't make life a continuous sequence of absolutely fantastic, super-duper. There are moments where, in our experience within this realm, it's absolutely fantastic, but it, it, that's all it is, is a moment. And where life can be absolutely horrible, avici hell at its worst, unmitigated misery. But that's a moment too. There's no way that you can, that, that, those, that those extremes are merely reference points to begin to awaken more to the, to the flow and movement and the way things change rather than the grasping of wanting the the absolutely fantastic golden Aquarian age and the, and the fear and dread of it all being miserable, painful, unpleasant. <clears throat> now being patient is one, is part of our practice, isn't it? It's, it's really the practice, is learning how to be patient. More than learning how to do anapanasati or, or developing any, anything at all, Really, the, the practice is learning to be patient with the way things are. You can't really do anapanasati unless you're patient. And it's a totally frustrating practice if there's ambition and just selfish willpower and all that going into anapanasati. It, you get nowhere with it. It's a frustrating and annoying kind of thing to have to do if you're coming, if you're trying to do it from, to try to get to get high and, and, and get, avoid everything, trying to develop yourself and attain and achieve. For example, this evening is a practice to sit up, the all-night sitting. Now that in itself is a perception, isn't it? It's, it's night now, night time, the all-night and then we have perceptions of whether that we're going to do it or can or cannot do it or, or should or shouldn't or uh, maybe we've got a good reason not to, maybe we want to think up a good reason not to or maybe we really like to do it. Maybe we, we really enjoy it. I wish there were more all-night sittings. 
whatever, but this, this is, uh, and so we can create in our mind all kinds of, of things around the perception of all night sitting. But what is all night when there's only the here and now? The way it is right now. All night, we can think, perceive all night, and then we can remember the last all night sitting was this way or that way. But if you're more just patient with the way it is, with Dhamma, the Pachubana Dhamma, the here and now, then all night is not really a problem, is it? We aren't creating a problem about that uh, view. Just learning to, to be with the way it is, it takes patience, because we're, we're, impatience is not wanting to be bothered with the way it is. I can't be bothered with just being here and now. I want, I want to get somewhere. I want to achieve something. The discontentment, restlessness, wanting something we don't have, not wanting what we have, wanting to get somewhere, get, become something, or get rid of something. This is repeated over and over, the desire in the second noble truth. Karma dana, power dana, vipuva is just sit here and want to get something, get rid of something, have some sense pleasure, you get bored. When you get really bored and fed up, what, what, is the, what, do, what, what do we tend to do? Is seek sense pleasure. We want something to eat. At least I find that, <clears throat> I found that in my mind, tendency to, when you get bored or just restless, uh, a kind of strong desire to drink or eat something. Kamadana. Do you really need, do you really, you really need, say, is it really necessary? This has nothing to matter of need or anything. It's just the desire to, because you're bored and restless and want to do something, and one of the pleasing sensory experiences is eating, isn't it? simple thing, we've done it since we were born, eat. And then there's other sense pleasures, because sense pleasures are very immediate and distracting, aren't they? They're, you can you know, they listen to music or, or look at something or eat something, all this kind of immediate uh, kind of distraction, absorption goes on. Desire to become something, pavadanha, is, is say, a little more kind of, uh, you're willing to put off, maybe, you're willing to, to relinquish a lot of the sense pleasures in order to become, you, know, you, have, you can't just sit around eating all the time and, and just indulging in the sense world in order to really become somebody good and, and wise. You have to give up all that. And so you, you're willing to maybe give up sex and and eating whenever you feel like it and drinking and and all this in order to become something become a finer more refined or highly developed being or become enlightened and then then because we still have these longings for gamma gamma pleasures and we and, and also we have also this desire to get rid of 
these coarse desires, the disgusting desires that keep pulling us into the into the sensual realm all the time, uh, like enjoying food and drink and and uh, sex and all these things that is a disgusting uh, kind of habits that we have to suppress in order to become. And so our life can be a constant struggle, isn't it? A kind of resistance and indulgence practice where we we're trying to get rid of something and then we indulge and then we we feel guilty and then we uh, want to become something, get rid of these bad habits. And and so even the holy life can be uh, just a, a realm of struggle and strife that we create. Is this what the Buddha was teaching? It was just an endless struggle to try to get rid of uh, sensual desires and all this. To make ourselves become something else. And his teaching is very clear, isn't it? That it's not, not a teaching of suppression or repression. The, the relinquishment is not, a, is not done with aversion or fear, but understanding, this idea of understanding and realization. Is the whole is what Buddha Buddha really means the ability to understand Dhamma, and to realize truth, which means that that you have to really look at the at these desires, the the three kinds of desire, not from the patriarchal position of judgment. an attachment, but from the Buddha position of investigation, examination, looking, understanding, knowing things for what they are, knowing them for what they are. One well, somebody once def- described meditation or the or the f- purpose of say the Buddhist practice is in in Western terms saying to make yourself to allow yourself to be totally vulnerable make yourself allow yourself to be totally vulnerable when you think of most of our lives we try to make ourselves invulnerable haven't we because out of fear, fear of being hurt, of being uh, despised, being taken advantage of, uh, most of our life has been very much one aimed at trying to protect ourselves, defend ourselves, making ourselves uh, invulnerable, invincible, safe and secure. Nobody can hurt me. So, so much investment in, in worldly things, in mo- having, making money and having power and position and security is very strong, isn't it, in, in the Western world. To have these very important 
to have lots of money and security, own your own home and have have uh, status. If you if you're nobody, then you can be kind of exploited. But if you're somebody important, you know the sense of protecting yourself, defending yourself. So you can see it in in just the they say the political issues of the present age, or the say with the Soviet Union and the United States. They don't want to make themselves vulnerable, do they? Invulnerable. They go to, they build, have these nuclear build-ups, totally insane, idiotic nuclear build-ups. Horrible weapons that they make, spend all this time, all their money making these dreadful weapons to make themselves invulnerable. But there's this incredible fear generated from that, isn't it? And this tremendous fear and gloom and uh, anxiety about the state of the world because these two monstrous countries are trying to make themselves invulnerable. And by doing that, they have to, to threaten each other all the time. And, and be, uh, how, many, how many nuclear warheads do you have? We've got to have more than that. They can overkill us 40 more times than, than we can them. You can only kill once, can't you? So they want to overkill. Make sure that you get everyone. Have not one Russian left. And what kind of I mean, that we think that's being invulnerable. We're not vulnerable anymore. We're, we're safe because they're so frightened of us that they wouldn't dare attack us. So you have to hold yourself up. Like if you're really wanting to make yourself invulnerable, you have to put on this front all the time. Don't you? Like, like tough guy, like Humphrey Bogart. You put on this tough appearance and I'm really tough. Don't don't fool around with me. I'll smash you right in the nose, baby. <laughs> and this is this tough defense. You have to you have to hold it all the time. If you relax it, then you then you there's this fear that if you relax and let anyone see there's anything soft or vulnerable there, it'll just take you right over. Like the United States thinks that. Immediately, they don't, if they stop talking tough and and flexing their muscles and rattling their sabers, the Soviet Union is just going to come rushing right and take over the whole Western world, all of Western Europe and America along with it. One sign of weakness or softness, and then this this invincible evil force will just come in and take over everything. So you've got to maintain this facade, this, this appearance of, of being invincible, invulnerable, tough. And I've just seen that in just my own, my own conditioning as a, as, as, a, uh, as a human being. I've never considered myself a kind of tough guy, actually. So I've never, uh, never really... Uh, thought of myself in that role of being a really tough guy. But I've seen just the, the, the fear and anxiety 
of being defenseless, of being weak, of being vulnerable. And so, uh, and because of that, there's a, a developed a lot of defenses, defense mechanisms, a way of, of just cutting everything off, of protecting myself, of, of uh, not, show, not trying to show any, not let anyone know there was any kind of anything vulnerable, anything really sensitive. Because the fear of being hurt, of being taken advantage of, was so strong. And yet, I grew up in a fairly benevolent system. Parents were very nice, pleasant people, and society certainly wasn't a a tyrannical one. American society is very kind of easygoing and not, not, uh, it wasn't vicious or mean. But still, just even in that in that kind of society, which which aims at freedom and and uh, equality and high has high-minded values, one still feels this sense of anxiety and fear, and a tremendous uh, fear of being of once somebody finds out your weak spot, that you'll, you'll be taken over, you'll be demolished. So this one develops maybe a whole, a, a, you see it in so many people, just a, a lifetime of defensiveness. <clears throat> then meditation is the volunteering to make ourselves totally vulnerable. It's going against everything, isn't it? All our conditioning, out of fear conditioning, suddenly we're, we're putting ourselves in a totally vulnerable position, like being an alms mendicant, with a, being, shaving your head, wearing a robe. You're really stripping yourself of the kind of defenses, the security, the safety of, say, the, the tradition, the culture, and the, the uh, position of class, and and having money, and having property, and security. In some way, we're, we're, we're slightly absurd in the system, aren't we? we we're odd. We're different. <clears throat> we're making, we're, we can't fight back. Somebody yells something nasty, obscene at us, we just have to accept it. We don't, we can't yell back. We can't hit back. There's a, a, there can be tremendous fear that, that we'll be just taken advantage of or hurt. Be insulted, hurt, despised. And yet the surprising thing that I've found is that, that the more you trust in the, say, what I call the refuges, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, the more this sadhau, this faith, develops in its strong and kind of supporting strength, the, the less kind of problems there are. The problems, the things that tend to, used to be terrible problems for me when I was a lay person have disappeared. And many more problems and difficulties and was insulted much more as a lay person. <laughs> the truth, I, w- I think people insulted me much more when I was a layman than since I've been a monk. 
I expected to be insulted more, you know, like living here in the, in the West, I expected to, to be insulted more than I have been. And I think back, I, was, I had much more kind of problems and was frightened and had uh, con- fights and quarrels in that as a lay person, where this hardly, ever, this, this just doesn't happen in this life. Never had to fight anyone in this life, physically. A few stupid quarrels. But then you learn that's just not the way to do it. <laughs> and the, the trust in, the, in, in, the, in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So in being vulnerable, somehow, paradoxically, you become invulnerable. But it's not the invulnerability of callousness and fear and, and protectiveness, but the invulnerability of, through fearlessness and trust. And you're not creating the conditions to which, which cause any problems. I realized that before, when I was a very defensive, frightened uh, person, I would always create things around me that would be problems and I'd, and, and that people would react to that and, and I would, uh, there's always uh, so many difficult things happening around me. Not that I was, you know, a particularly difficult person even, but it was uh, just the, the attitude and the fear that generated from me to the rest of the people around and then they react and so you just get caught in these and the feeling of being alienated and lonely, even though you're, you, you, you seem to have a lot of friends, because of your fear and anxiety, uh, at least I felt very, very lonely when I was a layman. So lonely sometimes. I, I'd walk through the streets uh, of Berkeley at night and see people sitting in their houses, eating their dinners, and I feel, really feel sorry for myself. Poor me, all alone. And yet I didn't, I had friends, or so-called. I mean, how can somebody so defensive and frightened really have friendships? Because you, you, uh, you, you, you don't, you can't, uh, you're so caught up in yourself, you can't really open out to anyone around you. So you have kind of acquaintances or, or mutual kind of acquaintances where you, kind of reinforce each other's bad habits. So I had plenty of those kind of <laughs> But that increases this sense of alienation and loneliness. In, uh, since being a monk, then one begins to say, have a sense of kalyanamita. Noble friends, not, not just acquaintances where we feed each other's delusions, but the kalyanamita where we encourage each other to rise up, to, to, to live in a way that is worthy of respect and to help each other towards the spiritual life. So that the holy life is, is one of, uh, it has a 
sense, we, we, we respect ourselves. We learn to respect each other. And the sense of Kalyanamita, noble friends. One feels surrounded by noble friends. And therefore, there's no sense of being threatened, is there? I don't, the more one trusts and, and appreciates and then feels compassion and love and joy for the beings around one, then there's nothing to be frightened of. Or the sense of alienation, loneliness, despair falls away. At first I remember thinking when I, that the monastic life was just too much. They, you know, one was just asked to d- give up too much. And then it became apparent that all they were asking me to do was give up a burden. Now they weren't asking me to give up <laughs> only the burden. That's why they were talking about relief. Really contemplate with feeling of relief. Not, not to think of Nibbana, that is getting high and rapturously ecstatic, but of relief, of being just relieved, of not having to hold on and defend and protect and, and manipulate, control everything. Now there's some, some of you still very frightened of losing control. So you, that you think, oh, if I, you've got to really get rid of these defilements, I've got to control my mind and make it this way and bend it that way and, and do this and do that. There's a tremendous fear of losing control. But the relief of not having to control. And the, 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 the trust, the this in in uh, in the Dhamma, where you you can just be with things as they are, and not having to control it anymore. Because when you're with things as they are, there's there's mindfulness, there's wisdom. It's not up to me to make it into anything. I can I can act or not act according to what is appropriate, rather than to fears and desires. If I'm if I'm if I'm if I'm trying to make the world into what I think it should be, then uh, always I'm imposing onto the moments around me something out of fear and desire. I'm projecting onto life or something more out of ignorance and fear and desire. And so, no matter how good my intentions are, as long as they're coming out of ignorance, then it's never going, it's always going to be disappointing, frightening, the the do-gooders of the world. No matter how much good they try to do, because it comes from ignorance, it's somehow oftentimes misunderstood, or it's not appropriate to the time of the place, or it's coming from arrogance, or patronization or 
never quite appropriate, never quite suitable to the time and place. Where when we abide in trust, in saying that tamang sarnangachami, our refuge in Dhamma, then, then we can trust our responses to the time and place. Not that we, we, we're, having to, we're having conditioned re- reactions anymore, but we can respond. Our actions are appropriate to the time and the place. Rather than thinking, meditation is going to make me into kind of totally unfeeling, uh, tranquilized, kind of creature where you sit there. No matter what's happening, you, you're just saying it's all impermanent and not self. And, uh, and you, you just don't want to know. And sometimes that's the image you get. That Western people think that, that the Buddha just sat under a tree and, and uh, said everything's impermanent and unreal anyway, so it doesn't matter what happens. But the, the story of the Buddha certainly isn't the story of, an, of anyone doing that, is it? Definitely a lifetime after enlightenment of service, compassionate service to humanity. And it wasn't because he, he planned it out under the tree. It was a, a natural and appropriate response to the way things are. When you read the Vinaya, if you study Vinaya, you begin to realize that that, is, that that Vinaya discipline came into being as an appropriate and natural response to the way things are. It wasn't the Buddha sat down and wrote out the Vinaya and said, now all the monks uh, have to keep all these rules like this. And then as soon as he got a monk, he said, now you have to keep all these 227 rules. But it's something that was that grew from as a from a natural response to the way things are, and so Vinaya is to be studied much more for its 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 spirit, rather than just seeing it as a bunch of arbitrary rules that you have to keep uh, uh, blindly. But it, the whole spirit of Vinaya is contained within that as as a way of of understanding and. And um, living in in a in a way that that we can respond to life. Do good, refrain from doing evil. Purify the mind. Another thing to do with. Just to another reminder, saying, regards to our life here is like the vinaya practice, the discipline. Just learn to do it like you're, like it's because just learn how to do it this way, so that you, you're, 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 you are restraining. You're learning to restrain yourself, not just follow impulses. Once you surrender to the restraint. Then you can really practice because you, you're not you're not kind of resisting or trying to create anything. You're you're much more like like being in a smooth running vehicle, where you're not just being bounced around and it's so tough and difficult that you can never, never uh, really observe things very closely because you're always trying to hang on 
if you if you develop Vinaya properly, it's more like it's riding in a streamlined train or in a jumbo jet or something very smooth. Is uh, where you can really look at the subtleties of and things more closely. You can you can examine. You can see Dhamma because you're not just trying to to survive uh, and, and and hang on in, in something that's so so harsh and difficult and confusing that you have to give all your attention to just survival. See, in a, in a community like this, it, once it's accepted, then it's, it's just like a streamlined community. Streamlined for stream entry. So I'm into these slogans these days. Amravati Buddhist Center, the ABCs of Buddhism. <laughs> but this stream, streamlining means that it's, it's simple as it's not 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 uh, actually if you if when you learn the discipline and all that it just makes life very simple simplicity trust respect self-respect respect for others and then our real looking investigating dhamma is at its high at its peak it's like during this retreat notice for two months because we haven't had Fights, quarrels, we've all had agreements, how to live here, who's going to do what, and, and uh, how to, uh, you know, nobody's trying to, to get anything for themselves, or, or there's no factions. All this has been completely kind of let go of. So you can contemplate Paticca Samupada. <clears throat> if we had a lot of factions and coups and quarrels and that, how would ever get around to even thinking about anything like that, Paticca Samupada? We just have to have a kind of contest out in the field, jousting and wouldn't be able to do anything very much, but just competitions, quarrels. As you, because of that, because of the situation here, then you can have, you have the, the, the trust, the, the ease, the, the respect, all the supportive conditions towards looking more closely, contemplating Nama, investigating these Four Noble Truths, until you really understand, there's a real understanding and, and, and a realization of it insight, knowledge. Then we can share that with each other, like some of the conversations during this past month have been incredibly inspiring. To hear people talking about Paticca Samupada at tea time is a delight. Some of the things usually discussed The people really using their minds for reflection and 
intelligent reflection, investigation, insight. So this evening is, uh, as I said before, the the uh, night of the waxing moon, and uh, we'll have our customary uh, all-night sitting. You're all invited.